is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lamb. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lamb. Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort, the world's most dangerous Bible podcast, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate the most important conversations in society, from politics to pop culture and beyond. If I've said it once, I've said it a million times, whenever a guest chuckles at that little intro there, you know it's going to be a good one, and this one is no exception because Good Faith Fam, ever since we scheduled the recording for this episode, I've been barely able to contain my excitement. This is my equivalent of meeting Beyonce. This is just unbelievable. We have with us one of the most influential biblical scholars of our day, possibly the most influential, among many, many staggering accomplishments. He's written some of the most uh, important studies of both narrative and poetry in the Hebrew Bible. He's without a doubt the most prominent translator of the Hebrew Bible on the planet, and he's the author of a massive three-volume translation of and commentary upon the Hebrew Bible. He's the legendary uh, Robert Alter, and we're going to talk about the Bible, uh, of course, in translation, as literature, and much more. But first, let's set this up. Okay, so we've just started reading through the book of Genesis, and in particular, I want to talk about one of the most important turning points in the entire Bible, and that's the transition from Genesis chapter 11, the story of the Tower of Babel, to Genesis chapter 12, which begins the story of Abraham. And I say this is a turning point because prior to Abraham's introduction into the narrative, the Bible tells a universal story. It talks about the creation of the world and of humanity, and the two protagonists of this story, Adam and Eve, are archetypes. You're supposed to look at them and see all human beings, and that's why, for example, Adam's name just becomes one of the standard Hebrew words for person. Then you get Cain and Abel, prototypical brothers, asking universal questions about murder and justice. And then you get a flood that punishes the entire world. You get Genesis chapter 10, which tells us about the beginning of all the different peoples and nations in the world. And then finally, you get the Tower of Babel, a story about the attempt to create or, in my view, impose a universal order. And of course, all these universal projects fail, Adam and Eve sin. Cain murders Abel. The generation of the flood debases itself into oblivion. Babel implodes. And so it's precisely at this point that God, as it were, shifts gears. The focus pans into Abraham. And Abraham isn't a stand-in for anybody. He's just like some guy from some otherwise anonymous family in Mesopotamia. And the rest of the Bible is his family's story, the story of one people who build a unique relationship with God, whom God love, not because they were the same as everybody else, but because they were different. And this in turn demonstrated to the rest of the world that it's precisely indifference and what makes each of us, whether as individuals, communities, or societies special, that a true substantive relationship with God flourishes. So that's the grand disjunction between Genesis 12, the beginning of Abraham's story, and everything else that came beforehand. But I think it's worth calling attention to something that ties the new particularistic focus of the Hebrew Bible to the universal story immediately preceding it, the Tower of Babel. So in this brilliant and, you know, also characteristically super difficult and impenetrable essay on the Babel story, the philosopher Jacques Derrida pointed out that the centerpiece of this story about the breakdown of understanding, of untranslatability, is a pun. The Hebrew word for Babel, Babel, is very similar to the Hebrew word for confusion, Balal. And this allowed the Bible to humorously claim that the world-famous city of Babylon itself was named after the linguistic confusion that it spawned. Now, here's the thing about puns, Derrida pointed out. They're, by definition, very nearly untranslatable. So it turns out that the literary climax of the most famous story about untranslatability 
is a linguistic phenomenon that can't be translated, which only heightens the confusion. But you know what else is the exact same feature? The Abraham story. Remember, at the beginning of the narrative, Abraham doesn't have that H in his name. He's just Abram. And this name change is a central feature of the covenant that God makes with Abraham, but the significance of the change can only really be understood through the Hebrew wordplay that it produces. And so just like the Babel narrative, Abraham's story actually resists translation in an important way. But I think there's a difference. In Hebrew, the significance that God attributes to Abraham's new name is that it signals that he'll be, in Robert Alter's translation, a father to a multitude of nations. So... Whereas in Babel, untranslatability is a barrier to understanding, and ultimately the reason the Tower Project is abandoned, in the case of Abraham, untranslatability becomes an invitation to deeper engagement. It's an invitation to care about Abraham, and for Abraham to care about others at a deeper level than just knowing what a given word means. The untranslatability of the wordplay is actually just encouraging the reader to engage in a deeper act of translation, one that reveals a different maybe heretofore incomprehensible world as something beautiful, full of wisdom and worthy of study. And at its best, that's what the act of translation can accomplish. It can bring people together. It can reveal hidden treasures in ways that very few other human activities can. And that's why I'm so excited to welcome on our guest today. He's the example par excellence of someone whose scholarship positively brims with a generosity of spirit, with a sense of kindness towards his readers, whose work invites others into a new world. And for that reason, I, I can't wait to speak to him about all things biblical. He's the master literary commentator and biblical translator himself, author of classic works like The Art of Biblical Narrative, The Art of Biblical Poetry, and of course, a magisterial field-altering translation and commentary of the entire Hebrew Bible. He's Robert Alter. Robert, thank you so much for being here. Glad to be here. So when we think about the history of biblical interpretation, one important thing I always find helpful to keep in mind is that the earliest biblical commentator is like the Bible itself. It's like you have Psalms that explicitly offer an interpretation of the Exodus, like Psalm 114, or you have Deuteronomy reflecting upon, you know, the Israelite experience of wandering in the desert and in Exodus and Numbers. So when we're interacting with a text, we're almost always, if not always, doing interpretation. So what is it that distinguishes translation from other forms of interpretation? And what is it about translation that particularly attracted you? Well, uh, to begin with, I would say that translating as against other kinds of interpretation is a no-escape activity. That is, you have to look at every word. You have to ask yourself, is the choice of this word rather than uh, a, an approximate synonym crucial to the meaning of the text? And then you have to ask yourself questions about word order. That, that is, uh, is the fact that that the pronoun object of a verb comes at the beginning of a sentence rather than being a suffix tacked onto the verb. Is that important? So at every small step of the way, you can't escape asking yourself, why is it this way and not that way, which is an act of interpretation. So your approach to engaging with the Bible is often described as the Bible as literature, which I've always hated. 
And that's why I love this wonderful observation you make in the art of biblical narrative that there's something like almost condescending in talking about the Bible as literature, right? As if literature was something extrinsic to the Bible with which it occasionally interacts. And the great turn of phrase you have is you, you pointed that, you know, how ridiculous would it be to talk about Dante as literature or King Lear as literature? So what do you see as the right way to think about the Bible in the context of literary concerns? Okay. Now, it has sometimes been asked to me in popular audiences, aren't I really distorting the Bible by approaching it as literature? Because after all, the Bible is a religious book. Here is the basic consideration. Of course, the the motives of the ancient Hebrew writers are religious, that they want to convey this new monotheistic faith. They want to give you a sense of what God's purpose with humanity is, what his purpose with the people of Israel is, and so forth. But for reasons which we will never be able to fathom, this tiny culture sandwiched in between great empires in the ancient Near East produced writers of literary genius, great prose I don't want to say quite fiction, but great prose narrative writers and great poets. And they decided to convey their religious vision of the world through very artful narrative and through uh, often brilliant poetry. So in order to see what the Bible is really about, you have to make some kind of recognition of its literary form. And that is a way, in a way, is what motivated me to do my own translation of the Bible. Because almost all the existing English versions, and I haven't checked out everything in French and German and the 70 some odd or 100 some odd, languages in which the Bible uh, has been translated, which, of course, I, I can't read. But I assume this, is, assume this is quite the case in other translations as well. The translations run roughshod over the literary shaping of the Bible. And in doing so, they don't do justice to what the Bible has to tell us. So uh, I decided, first I thought there was a kind of quixotic idea back in the, the mid-90s that I would try to do a translation of Genesis that would do more justice to its literary art. Now, I, I said to myself, this is kind of a crazy idea. It's crazy because the structure of ancient Hebrew and modern English uh, is very different. The uh, semantic range of key terms doesn't overlap very much. And so what I will produce will be grotesque. <laughs> and everybody's going to hate it, and I'll probably hate it. 
However, I, no translation really is uh, a precise equivalent of the original, if the original is a master work. But you can get better approximations and worse approximations. And when I finished Genesis, it turned out to my satisfaction, and then fortunately to the satisfaction of reviewers, that it was a better approximation than I thought I would be able to do. So given the positive response to my Genesis, I decided I'd do one more book. And one led to the, to the next, and finally I did the whole ball of wax. <laughs> it's, it's, it really is uh, to the great fortune of the rest of us that you're such a sucker. <laughs> so much as in, well, speaking of older translations, much as in basketball, all subsequent great players inevitably need to be compared to Jordan. So all translations of the Bible into English need to be compared to the goat of Bible translations, the King James Bible. And I think one popular misconception of the King James is that, oh, well, now it sounds really old-fashioned, but back in the day, it was just regular English, right? But that's not entirely the case. The translators of the King James deliberately tried to create a version that would sound familiar and traditional to its audience. So even in 1611, the English of the King James was already slightly archaic. So, so is that an important consideration in getting a translation of the Bible correct? Meaning, are there contexts where keeping an archaic feel might be the best way to stay true to the gravitas the Bible means to convey? Like, the example I, I had in mind when I was thinking about this was, love thy neighbor as thyself, right? What a revolutionary statement to conclude that section in Leviticus. And it comes right before this proclamation by God, I am the Lord. But it might not hit as heavy if you modernize it to love your neighbor as yourself. So did you consider that at all over the course of your many years of doing translation? Oh, absolutely. First, I have to say that that the King James Version did certain things which certainly did not reflect the spoken English of its age, like four score and ten. Right. Three score and ten and then four score, which doesn't even translate the Hebrew literally, right? Right. The, the Hebrew is just a normal way to say 70. And, um, but I... Uh, I think it was a, a, a correct choice because it, it gives a kind of antique coloration to the uh, English version of the Hebrew. Now, I did something approximately similar, or let's say analogous. Uh, I did not want my English version to sound as though the Bible were written yesterday which is what all the, the modern translations by committee do, because it was written anywhere from, it, it spans a, a, about 900 years, so it was written anywhere from uh, 3,000 years ago to um, uh, 2,200 years ago. So what I, I, I did the following. I avoided anything that sounded very modern uh, as an idiom. Let's take, for example, the rather tricky issue 
of terms for sex in the Hebrew Bible. Now, you, you look at the modern translations and you find all kinds of monstrosities like to cohabit with, to have intimate relations with, to make love to, and all those sound entirely wrong. For example, I found one English translation that, that had Potiphar's wife saying to Joseph, make love to me. <laughs> and that's what, what a frustrated wife might say to her husband or a mistress might say to her lover. It isn't what a, a, an ancient Egyptian noblewoman would say to, to a young man. So here uh, I simply followed in the footsteps of, of the uh, King James Version almost. There are three terms for sexual intercourse in the Bible. To lie with, to know, and to come into. Now, when when the Hebrew said to lie with, I, I translated to lie with. When it said to know, I translated to know, because we're all aware that that has a sexual connotation. And it's even entered... English legal language, where we we talk about carnal knowledge, right? So it's it's perfectly viable. Why not? The come into is a little tricky because it suggests uh, the moment of sexual penetration in English, whereas in the Hebrew it suggests the whole act of sex. So uh, I compromise there and I translate to come to bed with, keeping the, the, the come part of it. So that's one way in which I avoided it, my translation sounding like it was just yesterday. Another thing has to do with syntax. And I will give you two examples. The prevailing syntax uh, of the um, biblical narrative is what's technically called parataxis, which simply means parallel syntax. That is, an Abraham rose in the morning and, and he saddled his donkey and he went out like a an, an, an. A prominent biblical scholar who was a friend of mine, when I sent him my genesis wrote back that, that English does not tolerate repetition of and this way. You have to break up the syntax and make it sound like normal modern. Right, so you would replace one and with a so, and you would omit another and, and you would replace another and with a then, right? Exactly. That's what all the moderns do. Now, I think this this is misconceived. It, it turns out that, that moderns can follow parataxis perfectly well, and it gives the flavor of the Hebrew, and often the parallel syntax of the Hebrew is used to pointed effect, and you don't want to lose that effect. And, by, and in Hebrew, it is the conjunctive letter vav, meaning and, which is doing that work. Right. So it's, it, it's exactly what's going on in the Hebrew. Exactly. Now, then there's a matter of syntactic inversion. And I'll give you just one example. When 
And Jacob's sons come back from their first journey to Egypt, and they they give dad the news that, that Simeon is being held as hostage, and that the man who rules over all of Egypt, of course their brother, will not see their faces again unless they bring down Benjamin. So Jacob is aghast. And he says in my translation, me you have bereaved, Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and Benjamin you would take, on me is all the burden. Now, many people would say, well, you don't say in English, me you have bereaved. We say you have bereaved me, or uh, some kind of elegant structure, it is I that you have bereaved which some of the translations do. But in fact, until the turn to modernism in English poetry, syntactic inversion was very common. For example, Keats's famous sonnet on first looking into Chapman's Homer, which many of us have read in school, begins as following. Much have I uh, wandered in the realms of gold. Now, that's not normal English syntax. You say, I've wandered much in the realm, but both for metric purposes, but also for emphasis, Keats wanted it to be much have I wandered. Now, if you look at the Hebrew, there's a justification for me you have read, which is the normal way in biblical Hebrew to say you have bereaved me, is to take the verb to bereave, shakel, and to stick on the end of it an accusative suffix. So it would come out as one word, shikaltuni. But that isn't what the writer does. Instead, he says, oti shikaltem. He breaks out the, the uh, pronoun me and sticks it at the beginning. My sense is that he did this because he wants to highlight the egocentricity of Jacob as a father who thinks he has been bereaved. He's not really been bereaved. So me, you have bereaved. And at the, at the end of the, the little speech, on me is all the burden. Alai ayukulana. So... I think for the meaning, it's important to, to stick that, the intactic conversion in. But it also gives the, the prose, while perfectly intelligible, a little bit of what I've called an antique coloration. This is not a text that was written just yesterday. It's a text that was written a long time ago. So one of the things that I, I love that your translation does very well, and I think deliberately so, is that it really tries to give a sense of the embodied physical nature of the Bible. The Hebrew Bible really revels as being engaged with the world and with the physicality of it. So, you know, you'll translate Ruach Elohim in the beginning of Genesis, not as the spirit of God, but as the breath of God. And one of the things that made me think about is onomatopoeia, 
which I think is an an underrated challenge for translation. Like, you know, the old Batman movie where you see kapow and zap just spelled out on the screen, (laughs) right? It's really hard to replicate that in translation, but that really is some of the most physical that language can get. Some of the most embodied that language can get is just trying its best to onomatopoeia, even not in translation, is a grasping attempt at trying to recreate something deeply physical. And I encountered at least five or six times in your translation places where you explicitly in the commentary on the translation where you explicitly refer to an onomatopoeia in the Hebrew. The the example that I, I recall is, for example, in the story of uh, in Judges chapter three of Ehud's assassination of King Eglon, the word that Eglon uses when Ehud tries to get him come close to come close to tell him a secret is has, right? Like, which which is onomatopoeic, right? And which you translate as silence. So how do you think about phenomena like this that on their face seem potentially untranslatable? Well, what I would say is that sometimes you can translate them and sometimes or find approximate English equivalent, and sometimes you can't. Um, the same goes for puns. And in a minute, I'm prepared to come back to, to the, the pun issue. But let me first take up your generalization about the embodiment of the language in the Hebrew. Even spirituality is thought of in terms of the human body. And I tried to get that in my translation. So I'll give you one striking instance from Psalms. The Hebrew nefesh does not mean soul. And there's not a single occurrence of soul in my whole translation. And that was quite deliberate because I think that there's no biblical concept of soul or a, a distinction between body and soul. The, the word that, that's translated everywhere, including by the moderns, is soul means breath and life breath. Then its meanings ramify. In one direction, it means appetite, which is uh, maybe an odd idea. In, in a, another direction, it means throat or neck, because the throat is the passageway for the life breath. So there, in one of the Psalms, uh, the speaker says, my, okay, first I'm going to do it the way the other translators are. My soul thirsts for you, O Lord, in a, a parched land without water. Now, that's beautiful, but I don't think it's what the Hebrew says. The, the, since nefesh can mean throat, and you look at the parched land without water, I think the poet is saying, my throat thirsts for you, O Lord, in a parched land without water. Now, that may be less beautiful, in quotation marks, than my soul thirsts for you, but it's very powerful. In other words, the speaker's longing for God is likened to the longing of a man wandering through the burning desert for a drink of water. I was going to say, I, I love the idea that you can almost see 
in the texture of the words themselves, some of the world that the Bible seeks to inhabit. And, and I love the idea that spirituality as such is inseparable from the body. I mean, it's, it's to show my cards, I suppose, it's the Gnostics were wrong in how they read the Bible. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I think that's such a good example of that. So how, how would you render things that are more difficult to translate like that? Puns, onomatopoeias, wordplay. Okay. Let me uh, take an example from Isaiah. Because Isaiah was a master poet. That is the first Isaiah, not all the others whose, whose poetry was stuck to his book. So we're talking whatever's happening, you know, however you interpret the book of Isaiah, whatever's happening in chapters roughly 1 through 40. Right, through 39. Through 39, right. 40 is already Nachamu Nachamu Ami. So uh, w one of his very effective devices is to, uh, in order to represent in prophetic poetry the perversion of values in the kingdom of Judah, is to introduce a positive term and then put next to it a negative term, which is its antithesis, but the two words sound alike. So if the sound alike dimension of the statement is not visible in uh, the translation, then the point, his point, the point of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, is blunted. So in chapter 5, uh, God is speaking, and he says in, in one, okay, I'm the first to translate this literally, and then the way I did it. He says, I hoped for justice and look, a blight. That's the first half of the line. But the Hebrew, the word for justice is mishpat, and the word for blight is mispah. So you see how brilliant that is and how it really drives the point home, the prophetic point. So I, I said to myself, I have to do something with this. So I rendered it as follows. I hoped for justice and look jaundice. <laughs> now, jaundice is not a general word for blight, but it, it's a particular kind of blight. So uh, I thought that that was fully justified and that, in a way, I had nailed it. Now, the second half of the, the, uh, the line here, I had to compromise a little bit. It wasn't as successful as the first half, but still it pointed to what was going on in the Hebrew. Uh, God says, uh, I'm sorry, it's uh, referring to God. And he hoped for righteousness and look a scream. Now that's really brilliant because you have righteousness, scream. I couldn't really do that. So my uh, partial approximation was he hoped for righteousness 
and look wretchedness. So at least the two words sound a lot. Wretchedness is not as powerful. It's, of course, not a, a precise translation of scream. Although, if things are wretched, you might scream. <laughs> but it doesn't quite get the violence uh, of scream. But at least it picks up the fact that a positive term is flipped in, into a highly negative term. So I, I want to talk about one more potentially untranslatable or, or at least very difficult to translate phenomenon, and that is names. Why is it important to have access to the Hebrew of the Bible for appreciating biblical names? And is it possible to, to preserve any of this in translation? Well, pretty much not, unless the name is explicitly etymologized in the, well, even then, say Isaac, Yitzchak, which means uh, he laughs or he will laugh. You can't change the name. So all, all you can, just, just as Samuel Johnson once said that, that patriotism is the last refuge of a scoundrel. We see a lot of that in American politics today. <laughs> I would say that, that a footnote is the, the last refuge of a scoundrelly translator. <laughs> so I think in these instances, and since I ended up doing a commentary, I had a vehicle. You can you just explain it in the, the, the commentary. So I want to take actually one example of that, and that's the opening chapter of the book of Samuel, which uh, the opening chapter of the book of Samuel presents Samuel's birth and origin story. And it seems to go out of its way to connect Samuel to Saul, especially through the repeated use of the root Sha'al, meaning to ask. Uh, and the connection's so strong that I, you had some scholars, academics, historians who argued that, well, really, the first chapter was originally about Saul and it's transposed to Samuel, which I think is just like a literarily tenured way of reading the, the text. But what are we to make of the connection between Samuel and Saul? And why why isn't Samuel presented as having that very same connection to David, whom he also anoints as king? What's the, the nature of, of the connection between Samuel and Saul? Well... It becomes a close relationship which turns hostile. Uh, and maybe the introduction of the name for Saul into the, uh, the naming of Samuel is a kind of prefiguration of, of that. And what's interesting to think about also is that Saul, the overarching theme that characterizes Saul throughout really his entire run in the book of Samuel is that search for knowledge, right? Which is, which is indicated by the root Sha'al to ask, right? He's, he's always seeking after knowledge and he can't find it. And his ultimate downfall is when he tries to use necromantic means to get it. And there he's, exactly. and he's specifically at, trying to recall Samuel from the dead in that, in that case. Why doesn't Samuel have that relationship with David? Well, I, I think he does not because David, after all, turns out to be the anointed king, the, the Mashiach, whom God really wants. So things go more smoothly. Well, actually, when Samuel dies, 
David is really early in his career. He's not fully instated as king. He's a kind of partial king in Hebron. So th there's, in a way, no room in the story for uh, a relationship to evolve between him and Samuel. Then another prophet pops up in the David story without uh, introduction, and that's Nathan. And that relationship is fraught because the reason for Nathan's appearance is David's murder by proxy of Uriah after his having slept with Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. Here's a, a question that I suppose takes Samuel into account, but really looks at a larger swath of the literary sweep of the Bible. And that is, does the Bible think a stable political order is possible? Like you read Judges, Kings, Chronicles, what's the verdict? I think the verdict is negative. <laughs> I, I would put Chronicles to one side because it's a heavily ideological rewriting of the biblical story. And for example, in Chronicles, in what it gives us to the David story, there's no uh, Bathsheba. There's no murder of Uriah. David is just a good guy because he's God's anointed. But that isn't the way the primary story tells the tale. So what do we, what do we have is this. You might say it's how Lincoln thought Washington should be appreciated, right? Like kind of, yeah. right? <laughs> so in the period of Judges, you have these charismatic uh, ad hoc uh, leaders, not over all the tribes, but usually over one tribe or an alliance of a few of the tribes who marshal the people in armed resistance against uh, the oppression of surrounding nations. And that doesn't work out very well. So there's, there's this refrain toward the end of the Book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel Every man did what was fit in his own eyes. And that didn't work out well. The last complete story told in the book of uh, Judges is a horrendous thing. Uh, the, the story of the, the um, concubine at Gibeah, who is um, gang raped to death by men in the tribe of Benjamin. And then there's a bloody civil war between Benjamin and the other tribes. So then we have a king. But the biblical writers are realists. Whatever they, they, their convictions about divine election. And kings don't work out so well, beginning with David. I, I like to, to say, I think this is true, that one of the best commentaries on the David story is William Faulkner's Absalom Abigail, which ends in disaster. And Faulkner understood that the David story about the man who is divinely elected to be the um, founder of the, the dynasty 
It's also a story about the fall of the house of David. And then uh, as you move into Kings, it's a very bloody narrative. That, that is, that there are uh, repeated assassinations, uh, there, there are court conspiracies, and so on and so forth. And, and that's the way political history unfolds. So I would say that, that uh, the writers of these stories had a strong sense based uh, on historical realism that stability of the monarchy, uh, any kind of political stability, was uh, not on the cards. Very good friend of the pod, Jeffrey Sachs, wanted to ask you that you've cited the popularity of a variety of writers, whether it's it's Herman Melville, James Joyce, uh, Cormac McCarthy, as evidence that that modern or relatively modern readers are capable of really appreciating how messy the Bible's narrative style and literary style and prose and poetry can be. So do you take inspiration from those sorts of writers in turn when you're doing your own translational work? To a limited extent, yes. Let, let me take the, the instance of parataxis, parallel syntax. When this eminent biblical scholar who was my friend, he's no longer alive, wrote objecting to my use of this kind of syntax in my translation. And by the way, he was a member of the uh, Jewish Publication Society Translation Committee. So he, he was committed to that vision of translation, which I think is profoundly misguided. So I said to him at the, the end of my re response, I said, look, for my money, the, the most brilliant extended example of prose poetry in the English language is Molly Bloom's soliloquy at the end of Joyce's Ulysses. And parataxis predominates. Molly is refusing and, and, and. So, I mean, I, I didn't really try to uh, emulate Joyce's style, who could, but, but um, it gave me kind of encouragement on the path that I was going. One of the, the really well-known, beloved uh, medieval Jewish exegetes, Rabbi Samuel ben Mayer, who was the grandson of the famous Rashi, he was the preeminent medieval Jewish biblical commentator who was deeply influential, obviously, on the Jewish tradition, but also on the Christian tradition in the Middle Ages, and then eventually again during the Renaissance and beyond. Also, little, little known bit of trivia, one of the great medieval readers of Rashi was Stephen Langdon, who's responsible for introducing the chapter breaks that we're familiar with uh, in the biblical text. The Archbishop of Canterbury, Stephen Langdon, uh, who also forced King John to the table, helped force King John to the table for the process of signing the Magna Carta. Rabbi Samuel ben Mayer wrote of his grandfather that when he would study with his grandfather Rashi, he would reflect, the grandfather would reflect that you know, if he could do his commentary again, he would on the on the basis of of new interpretations that occur to him every day. So one common question that I got from uh, from lots of people online 
were uh, versions of this question, for example, by Andrew Green. What's one word choice that in retrospect you wish you'd chosen differently? There are a lot. That, that is, um, people should understand that translations of great works, not just the Bible, but say Flaubert or, or um, Thomas Mann or whoever, are compromised. They're compromises through and through. And there are happy compromises, and then there are painful compromises. So I'll give you one right from the beginning. In the creation story, we have the first male human being who is called by everybody Adam, with a capital A. Now, the Hebrew doesn't call him that. The Hebrew calls him Ha-Adam, the Adam. And Adam means person or human being. And, and by the way, Adam is not gender-inflected. That, that is, it is grammatical. Grammatically, it's a masculine noun. But we have... B'Tselem Elohim bara et Adam, Zachar unkeva bara otam. In the image of God, he created the Adam. Male and female, he created them. So, male, so Adam covers both male and female. So I did not want to gives the impression that uh, Adam is a name. With a definite article before it, the Adam, it couldn't possibly be a name. So what did I do? I translated it as the human. Now that's accurate, but it's a little weird. (laughs) Because it's like something from a a sci-fi narrative. The the Martians step out of the... (laughs) Space. So look, there's the human. <laughs> so I kind of regret it, but I don't regret it. Right, right. So there's one in sort of the, the relatively early going in the commentary, and you do this, I mean, dozens if not hundreds of times throughout the commentary, and they're all great. Uh, for example, Genesis 12, when Abraham and Sarah go down to Egypt, and Sarah is appropriated into Pharaoh's harem and and Abraham's conduct in this episode is the subject of dispute even amongst the medieval Jewish commentators. But there's one moment where Pharaoh relates to Abraham that, you know, he's been stricken by plague and he doesn't clarify what has happened to him. And in the commentary, you point out that this is sort of like a gap, and it's a deliberate gap where sort of what has actually happened to Pharaoh is left to your imagination. But the very strong suggestion, as you point out in the commentary, is that it's some sort of, you know, genital disease or, or sexually transmitted disease of some sort, meaning the kind of thing that would strike Pharaoh in recompense for having appropriated this woman into his harem. And there you actually point to what's called the Midrash, right? Which is this sort of rabbinic, homiletical, legendary, literary tradition that typically does that. It fills in the gaps in biblical literature. So 
were you influenced at all? And this is sort of a, a, a very ancient and longstanding genre of traditional Jewish literature. How, if at all, were you influenced by midrashic techniques in crafting your translation? I think I was. Let me tell you something that goes back to the very first thing I wrote on the Bible. This must have been like 1978, perhaps a year or two earlier, when uh, I was a regular contributor to commentary. Uh, later, uh, I withdrew from commentary because I didn't identify with its politics. But for a while, it, it was a great readership. And I wrote the, this feisty article, I was pretty young, uh, about the, the need for a literary perspective on biblical narrative. And I complained that a biblical scholars spend all their time hunting down purported Akkadian loan words, and they don't know how to read a story. <laughs> so I took as my main example the story of Judah and Tamar, which at the time biblical scholars were saying... Oh, was it interpolation or it's this... Yeah. Interpolation, because we've just had Joseph sold into slavery, and then all of a sudden we have this strange story about Judah and Tamar. Now, in my article, I pointed out that there were all kinds of connections, both with the story that preceded and what follows, but especially with what preceded. That is, the there's deception by a garment, uh, that is, Tamar dresses up as a roadside prostitute, just as there's deception by a garment in the, the Joseph story, the, the, the bloody ornamental tunic or coat of many colors. There are um, goats in the, the preceding story. It's the blood of a goat in which the garment is soaked by the brothers. And Tamar stipulates as the price for her sexual service that there's so many goats. And there are a couple of other connections like that. So I wrote this blithely. And then sometime afterward, definitely before I wrote my book on biblical narrative, um, when I revisited the story and looked at the Midrash Rabbah, I saw that they had seen all those connections. <laughs> yeah. So I duly acknowledge this. So the Midrash is sometimes quite brilliant in seeing interconnections. Many of the interconnections are what we would call fanciful, but sometimes they're right on target in terms of the literary formulation of the Hebrew. So that was something that the Midrash helped me with. Uh, and um, sometimes their attention to specific words and the connotation of words help. Although there I would have to say that two medieval commentators, Rashi and Avraham Ibn Ezra, were even more helpful. Uh, I mean, given their orientation toward the Bible, they thought that if one particular word was chosen and not a synonym, there was a reason for it. And, and 
they often gave that reason. Gershom Shalom, the preeminent scholar of Jewish mysticism and one of the great giants of, of Jewish letters of the last several generations, observed that in his view, the three uh, works that most repaid continuous and continuous review were the Hebrew Bible, the Zohar, which is the great compendium of Jewish mysticism, and the works of Franz Kafka. Why does, why does Kafka make it onto that list? And what does he have to do with the Jewish mystical tradition? Well, here I'll follow what Sholem uh, wrote about him elsewhere. Sholem says, Sholem, I should say, after pronouncing it in German. Sholem <laughs> says somewhere that the, the ultimate criterion for canonicity is that the work requires interpretation. And Kafka's works all require interpretation par excellence. And it's not a trivial interpretation. It's an interpretation fraught with meaning, as with the Bible and uh, as with with the Zohar. Then uh, Sholem also says that in certain ways, although... Kafka certainly never read the Zohar. He did late in his life come to study little Talmud uh, after he learned some Hebrew. He, beginning uh, after the onset of the tuberculosis, he worked hard on uh, getting Hebrew. But this is a kind of affinity rather than an influence that Many of his ways of seeing the world were analogous to the ways of of thinking of Jewish mysticism. Sholem wrote a little article, I think in his later years, in which he points out that some of the parables of Kafka could easily be read as parables of the um, outrageously heterodox follower of Shabtai Tzvi in 18th century Poland, uh, Jacob Frank. <laughs> well, last question then, speaking of, of heterodoxy and orthodoxy. So as, you know, an orthodox Jewish rabbi myself, I, I imagine, well, having read your books and have been a fan for so long, you know, I know we make very different assumptions about the authorship of the Bible and, and timing and so forth. But one thing that I've always found so fabulous about your work is that it can be appreciated on so many different levels. You know, if you're working within sort of a traditional academic environment, with some of the assumptions that that scholars will make. Your work is extremely accessible there. But your work has also found a a massively influential home in kind of Orthodox Jewish biblical scholarship, both in Israel and to a lesser extent, but still importantly, in in America and English. Are you aware of or interact with at all any of that kind of, you know, more traditional biblical scholarship? And has that impacted at all how you think about the audience that you're writing for? Yeah, well, well, I didn't have a clear notion of the audience I was writing for, uh, especially when I undertook my translation. But even before that, with with the books on biblical narrative, biblical poetry, I thought, well, these will be of interest to to people of a literary bent who, who want to learn more about the Bible. 
what I discovered, somewhat to my surprise, was that both those two books and then the, above all the translation spoke to many religious people. And interestingly, religion of all stripes. I got fan letters from uh, Presbyterian uh, organists uh, and Baptist ministers uh, and uh, an Episcopalian nun. I didn't even realize it was Episcopalian <laughs> who, who said that my translation of Psalms had changed her spiritual practice, which I think meant that, that people were hungering for a translation that brought them closer to the actual spiritual world of the Bible. And I have to say, my, my favorite fan letter uh, was from a 14-year-old girl, an Orthodox day school. I love this. Yeah, who said that her teacher had recommended my translation and commentary, uh, and she had become a big fan. And that, that warmed the, the cockles of my heart. That's amazing. Okay, it, actually, if you don't mind, I have one, one, one more question for you, just because this is such a bucket list interview for me. Let's say you've convinced, you know, an American or, or an English speaker, English reader, the Bible's important to engage with, you've engaged with it, you've imbibed its style, and you've you've appreciated the thought world into which it inaugurates you. Now you're going to go out and read uh, some other work of literature, and you want to read something where the work that you've just done in engaging with the Bible will inform what you're about to read. Who should you go out and read next? Well, I think my first choice would be Moby Dick. <laughs> I love it. That's such a good one. <laughs> And let me tell you something. Uh, while I was still writing for commentary, uh, I published an article which then became part of my book on biblical poetry uh, on the voice from the whirlwind in Job. And um, a reader wrote, and this is why I know series, I love the reader response I was getting from those articles in commentary. And he said, uh, you know, it's a nice article, but you fail to see the, that the voice from the whirlwind was important for, for Melville because his vision of reality was similar to the vision articulated by God's voice at the end of Job. That, that is, the world does not center around man as, of course, Genesis says it does, that, that there are roiling contradictions. There's violence built into the structure of the universe, and yet that's the way it is, and that's God's creation. And that's pretty close to the way Herman Melville thought about the world. So I realized that there was a, a, an illuminating link in world view between the Joe poet and Melvin. Wow. What an amazing answer. What an incredible way to close out the, the conversation. Robert Alter, thank you so much for being here. I can't, I can't tell you how, how meaningful this was to me.
Well, it's a great pleasure talking with you. Look, there's really no other way to say this. The Bible is the most influential work in the history of human civilization, and it should be appreciated as such. This much is as close to a straightforward fact as you're likely to get. But much more interesting to me, I think, is the question of how best to appreciate the Bible. And here, there are any number of possible answers, all of which I think have their place. There's the judicial practical answer, heeding the Bible as the ultimate guide to life. That's a big part of it for me, for example. There's the political societal answer, understanding the role the Bible has played in the history of the West, or specifically America, and using that to help understand what makes us and our institutions tick. There's even the purely academic answer of trying to understand the Bible in its native cultural setting, and of course we can argue about what that was. But I think one of the most deeply underrated answers is what my teacher, Rabbi Shalom Karmi, called the literary theological approach to the Bible. Engaging the Bible as the Word of God and doing so not just by trying to derive commands from it, but actually understanding the rich contexts in which those commands are presented and the wonderful subtleties, linguistics, syntactic, thematic, or otherwise with which those commands and contexts are expressed. And it's here that Robert Alter is truly just an indispensable treasure of biblical scholarship. And not just heeding, interpreting, or studying the Bible, but actually reading it, luxuriating it. He gives us a window into the Bible's artistry that you might not get otherwise. It's sort of like the difference between reading a textbook on the biology and physiology of the human eye and then just sitting back without even necessarily understanding everything about it and just marveling at how beautiful the human eye truly is. Alter scholarship helps us capture some of that wonder, and I hope you take it with you as you engage further with this astonishing, gorgeous, monumental text we call the Bible. Anyway, thank you so much for listening in today. This has been an absolute blast, and while you're here, please be awesome. Head into Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, Google Play, or really anywhere you get your podcasts, and give us a rating. Five stars only, because it really helps people find the show. Anyway, this is Ari Lam making a good faith effort. I'll see you next time. Good Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lam. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice, because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Galad Brownstein. This is a Soul Shop podcast presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lamb and sign up for our email list at soulshopstudios.com slash goodfaitheffort. For more information about Soul Shop, follow Soul Shop on Twitter at Soul Shop Studios and on Instagram at soulshop underscore studios. And check out soulshopstudios.com. Soul